Hi, I'm Tom Woods, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm your host, Doug Stewart, and today I have a special guest with us to talk about something that's actually pretty near and dear to my heart, which is connecting Sunday and Monday. And we'll get into what that specifically means as we go into the conversation. I've personally been a big fan of any theological or ministerial work that delves into how do churches and how do Christians connect their worship with their work. And so we have Dr. Matthew Kamink uh, with us to talk about this. He's the co-author of a recent book with Corey Wilson called Work and Worship, Reconnecting Our Labor and Liturgy. Dr. Kamink is Associate Dean and Assistant Professor of Christian Ethics at Fuller Theological Seminary. He also serves as a fellow at the Center for Public Justice and a scholar in residence at Dupree Center for Christian Leadership. Matthew, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's absolutely great to be here. I'm looking forward to the conversation, Doug. Thanks. And uh, for listeners of our show, I actually have uh, Carrie Baldwin on. Carrie is no stranger to the podcast, and she is going to actually sort of co-host with me because both of us were very interested in this book. And uh, Carrie is actually going to be writing a review for the Libertarian Christian Institute of this book in the coming months. So you can be on the lookout for that. Thanks for joining me to co-host, Carrie. Yeah, it's good to be here. So Matthew, this book, as I introduced in the beginning, is I think an important work because, and no pun intended there, it is so important for us to connect our worship with what we do throughout the rest of the week. I mean, we spend, you know, if you're if you're in the South and Pentecostal, you might spend three hours in church on a Sunday morning, but for me, it's like an hour. And that sometimes fails to connect to my work when the time that I spend in formal church worship services. So as we delve into this conversation, we're going to talk about that connection and we're going to get a lot of your insight. But I want to start with just asking you how you got into this sort of research or this sort of interest. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I would say that I began getting into this work as a young pastor in New York City at Redeemer Presbyterian Church, which is pastored by Tim Keller. And they have a center for faith and work there. And when Tim planted the church in New York, you know, right there in Manhattan, I think one of the first things you realize is that the reason many people go to New York City is uh, to work. It's, it's a massive part of their identity. And so Tim had this deep understanding that if the church was going to be present in Manhattan, it needed to talk about work because work is so near and dear to a New Yorker's identity and to their sense of purpose and meaning and mission and all of that. So um, that, was, that was core to what we were doing. And I served as a pastor to professionals who were working in marketing and finance. Some of them were working on Broadway and in fashion. And they were asking these questions about how does you know, what I do on a Sunday morning, these songs and prayers and sermons, what on earth does that have to do with my conference calls and emails and, you know, mutual funds that I'm trading, you know, and so forth on Wall Street. And so as a young pastor, I was immediately challenged to wrestle with those questions. 
so that was that was sort of the first thing that got me on this path. Uh, and there were many more, of course. Was this something that was touched on in your in your formal training, or was this you said you were sort of you know were you cut off guard at all? You were cut off guard, I guess, to some extent. But like, how how much of a did this you know affect you as you like realized maybe you were really unprepared? I don't know. I'm just kind of curious about that experience because I was in yeah. seminary at one point. Yes, yeah, no, you're you're guessing right there, Doug. I was unprepared. <laughs> uh, seminary did not prepare me for that, and that's that's at the heart of what I'm getting after in this book is really that young pastors really don't learn too much about business, economics, the marketplace, and frankly, that's because seminary professors tend not to know very much about it. Or what they do know about the marketplace is, tends to be very negative. So they tend to think about economics and business as a place of greed right? and just a place of where bad things happen. And so <laughs> seminaries either ignore business leaders or denigrate them. And so the, the thinking that pastors are meant to serve and equip and empower workers to go into the marketplace is really not something that very many seminaries do. Mm-hmm. And so a big reason why I wanted to write this book and why I'm, my co-author and I worked on this book was because we wanted to provide a deep biblical theology arguing that work and worship are, are really meant to be united within what God is doing in the world. And so, you know, if you are running a company and you are providing jobs for people and you are creating value and you are enriching a community, that's a good and wonderful thing. And actually God is glorified by that. And God takes delight in that in much the same way as God is glorified by your songs on Sunday morning or your prayers in a, with a biblical understanding of work and worship, these things are meant to be united. And so, yeah, that's that's what we're getting after. Matthew, I, I really appreciate what you said about, you know, the fact that your seminary experience was such that pastors, theology professors, don't seem to have a very good working definition of things like economics, maybe even vocation. That's That's a word that often comes up in, I think, neo-Calvinist circles, Lutheran circles, that sort of thing. But uh, what I would love to, to hear, because, you know, you're talking about terms in this book that could be misunderstood. And so I want to start off with just some, some basic definitions so that we're all on the same page. You use some words like worship and liturgy. And I'm just wondering if you can define for us, like, how do you view liturgy? What is liturgy in how you're defining it in the book? And how is that different from worship? Or is it the same? Sure. Well, I think worship broadly defined is glorifying God, offering your whole self to God. And you might think of of worship as taking two primary forms. One is direct adoration, and the other is indirect action. So we can we can worship God directly through adoring him in prayer and song on a Sunday morning. But we can also worship God through action, through loving our neighbor, through creating beautiful things, through caring for our children. Um, both of those things, in an important sense, are worship. But they take different forms. 
And scripture very clearly commands us to do both of those things. We're commanded to sing and pray and gather, but we're also commanded to love and serve and and God's glorified by both. Liturgy is a set of actions, a set of practices or habits that churches will engage in on a Sunday morning. Every single church has a liturgy, whether it likes that word or not. So oftentimes people attribute the word liturgy to Catholic churches or Episcopal churches. But even, you know, low church Pentecostals or Baptists, even if all they do is three songs and a sermon, that is a liturgy. So every church has a set of habits on a Sunday morning. And those habits over time shape us and they shape the way that we read scripture. They shape the way that we think about the world and how we relate to each other. So over time, a small church community will be impacted by what it does on Sunday morning and by what it doesn't do. So for example, if you never confess your sins on a Sunday morning, that can have an impact on you. If you never have an offering, these sorts of things over time shape you. That's really interesting. I appreciate you taking the time to describe that. And I'm going to come back to that a little bit later, I think. But uh, the other thing that I wanted to ask you about in terms of maybe still still in the realm of definitions, but one of your focuses in the book is to talk about workers. You place this whole context of instead of calling Christians worshipers, right? You're calling them workers. So why the focus on workers specifically? Yeah, well, um, so at the very beginning of the book, we talk about this. Our, Our desire here is not to reduce human beings to nothing but workers, but really to shine a light on their identity as workers. So really to highlight for pastors and worship leaders that when they look out at their congregation on a Sunday morning, they don't just see parents and spouses who, uh, you know, need family counseling, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but they see people who have spent a whole week working, caring for the city, making good things, caring for customers, uh, doing all those sorts of things out of love for the city. And they have spent the whole week serving God So you are not, as a pastor, inviting them to serve God. They have already been serving God all week long. And so we really want pastors and worship leaders to look out at the congregation and say, wow, these people have been on mission all week. And we're here to celebrate that in an important way, rather than talk down to them as if they haven't been doing anything worthwhile all week. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good. And I just wanted to also point out the audience of your book. And I think you mentioned this earlier, but the audience for your book is clergy members, right? Pastors, elders, people who are in these leadership positions. And so, especially since you already have some experience being thrown into the deep end of the pool as as a pastor trying to relate work to worship on Sunday mornings, do you feel like in some personal sense that it's difficult for pastors who spend a lot of their time, you know, during the week steeped in, you know, theology books and working out their sermons and what are they, you know, doing for the next 
church service, do you think that they have a disconnect between what they do for work and what the rest of us do for work? Um, Absolutely. And so some of them are afraid to talk about work because they recognize that they don't know what they're talking about. Uh, So some of them ignore it. Mm -hmm. Um, This is why I really do encourage my seminary students at Fuller and pastors when I speak to them to actually go out into the factories and offices and have lunch with workers in their congregation. And um, rather than asking workers to come to the church office to meet them, uh, going out and you know visiting the farmer on his field or the nurse in her hospital and praying for them in those workplaces and listening to the sorts of concerns and challenges that they deal with in the workplace. Because when a pastor starts to learn it starts to impact their sermons and their prayers for the congregation. And they just become better pastors. Um, So that's a practice I really try to encourage pastors to take on. Yeah, it it seems like such a practice makes pastors relatable. I mean, I go to a church that's, I don't know, 1,000, 1,500 on a Sunday morning in multiple services. And um, although there's online stuff, so it's like maybe a little bit bigger right now. The reason I, you know, kind of mentioned as like the larger the churches that I've tended to experience, the more difficult it is sometimes to connect with a pastor with what they're saying and praying. Sometimes it feels more abstract when they pray for, say, what workers are doing or the plight or the the situations and con- and problems and challenges that they're facing. You know, not every pastor has been close up to the experiences that a lot of workers have. And so that was one of, you know, as I'm reading through the beginning parts of your book, I'm like, oh my goodness, this is so needed because there's just a lot of, there's a big disconnect in a number of ways. So I I think I'd want to explore a little bit with you. Why do you think some of these reasons are? Is it really just a matter of like, we're in a modernist, you know, industrialized society and, you know, this problem doesn't quite exist in the more less developed parts of the world. I'm just going to get your take on that. Yeah, there are many reasons why we feel a deep disconnect between work and worship. One of them, of course, is the modern separation between faith and public life. So this belief that faith is a private, personal set of values that you have, as opposed to a public way of life. So it's okay to be a Christian privately, you know, in, in your sort of quiet time in the morning, as long as you don't take your Christianity into the public square. And many workers accept that uh, mm-hmm. sort of modern compromise. They would call Jesus their personal Lord and Savior rather than Lord and Savior of the universe. So that's a big one. Uh, another is just, frankly, geography. The fact that we work and worship in very different places, where if you were to go to, you know, a small French village 500 years ago, the marketplace would be right under, right next to the church and the field, you could see the steeple, right? And so the, the priest would be walking through the marketplace and would visit you in your field. And it was all sort of a united community of, you know, family, work, and worship were all deeply united. But now we are commuting across vast cities and we often worship 
you know, churches have, have moved further out as people into the suburbs. And so people sort of leave the suburbs and they go into the city and their church is very suburbanized in that it, it speaks to the issues of the suburbs. So family life, marriage life, parenting, and uh, doesn't speak to city life, you know, working in offices and factories. And so that's another, that's another element. Frankly, another one is that we just don't want, sometimes we just don't want God to mess with our careers. Uh, We like to think that our careers belong to us. And it's really nice to have Jesus just be your sort of personal spiritual buddy. Uh, But the career belongs to you and you can do whatever you want. Mm -hmm. So you're kind of happy for church never to mess with that. (laughs) But there are many more, of course, that we could get into. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's interesting you put it that way. Like there is a that privatized, personalized, individualized faith is sort of a I would say it's a feature of, you know, the modern Western, you know, mindset in a number of ways, but it is in some ways peculiarly peculiar okay, I can't say that. It's uh <laughs> it's uh <laughs> it's in some ways very American, at least that you know, I'm sure it exists in other parts of the parts of the world, of course, but yeah, you know, I, there's an irony in that people want to say that they have a Jesus as personal savior, but like it doesn't influence their work where it's funny because people will mostly also say, well, I'm ethical because I'm a Christian or I, you know, I do a good job as unto the Lord or whatever. It's like, well, you can't go into the workplace and not be influenced by your personal faith. Even if, you know, you're not an evangelist, you know, to the person in the cubicle next to you, you're still carrying your faith into the workplace. And so, yeah, well, and, and frankly, so many, so many Christians don't think God cares about their work. And this is the really sad thing, is that they think that missionaries and pastors are the ones who do God's work in the world. Mm-hmm. And the rest of us just give money to them. Mm-hmm. And so they think that their work as real estate agents and factory managers, they think that those jobs don't matter, that the only thing that matters is missionaries and pastors. And so they could not imagine that God would be with them in the workplace and would take delight in what they do. Yeah. And, and so it's, why would I connect my work in worship when God doesn't care about it, you know? Well, and I think too, it's very easy for us to forget. And I think it's something that has been almost set aside by a lot of pastors. And I don't know, you know, how many seminaries do teach this, but we certainly believe that God created us to create, to be productive, to do things, to, you know, to cultivate our world. And somehow we've we've missed the connection between our creation in the garden and what God created us for and life now, you know, in 2020 with all sorts of of things that we can do to be, you know, productive. And it's also a part of our identity, I think, because God gives us skills and talents and interests and those are, those are purposeful. And yet for some reason, I think and I don't know if this is an American thing or a modern thing, you know, or Western thing, but we don't seem to be making the connection between the fact that God created us to create. And that's what we're doing during the rest of the week. Yeah, yeah. I I think that's right on, Carrie. And I think what I'd say is if if I could get a little nerdy about the Bible. (laughs) Sure. Absolutely. Um, 
<laughs> so you're absolutely right. God made us to create. We are made in his image and he is a creative, productive, imaginative God. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've read this really wonderful article about God as an entrepreneur and um, in, in that he is imaginative and he, he solves problems in creative ways. Um, but uh, what I wanted to add there is in terms of Genesis, um, a lot of Old Testament scholars are coming to see that the Garden of Eden was really understood to be God's first temple mm-hmm. and that Adam and Eve were God's first priests. Yes. And they were called to, to guard and keep and cultivate this temple and to extend the glory of God through, um, and this is what Old Testament scholars, through cultivation and irrigation. Mm. And this understanding is essentially that as Adam and Eve explore the garden, as they name the animals, as they cultivate it, as they multiply and fill, they are priests offering worship to God. Mm -hmm. And so their work, uh, their work with their hands as they walk with God through the garden is an act of worship. And so it should be no surprise to us that throughout the Old Testament, people are offering their, the work of their hands to God in worship. They're bringing their fruit. They're bringing their grain. Cain and Abel, right? They immediately bring sheep and, and produce. If you think about it, it is a very curious, strange behavior in the Old Testament that people keep lifting up the things that they make to God as if God cared about it. Mm-hmm. You know, but, you know, I have three boys and, and what my three boys do whenever they draw a new picture with their crayons, uh, what is the first thing they do with that thing that they've made? They bring it to me, right? Right. They lift it up and they show it to me. It's because there is something fundamental about work that is an offering of praise. Yeah. We are priests of creation. And we're, we're made to, to work and to offer that work. Right. Yeah, I think, I, I think you're, you're right on with that. So. Yeah, this is like, I'm like cheering here in, in my own little <laughs> private way in my office here. I'm like, this is so, you know, if, we, if you were preaching a sermon, I'd be the guy saying amen, and I'm an introvert, so I don't do that. Um, <laughs> I got I'm sorry, guys. I, got, I started preaching there. Uh-oh. No, no, it's <laughs> all good. That's all right. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. I think a lot of our listeners probably are, you know, nodding their heads along a lot too. I mean, you know, even as libertarian listeners, we might, we definitely acknowledge the importance of work. And at LCI, we've often talked about the importance of connecting work and what we, in our Christian faith, maybe not specifically work and worship like we're talking about right now. So there's, there might be a lot of people out there listening and they, many of them might be pastors or you know, leaders in, in what they do uh, in ministry, and they might be nodding their heads, but there's also the fact that we are also blinded to how we miss the connection between what we do as ministers and the people that are sitting in the pews. So I know that you talk a little bit in the book about how ministers can possibly be failing the people in the pews. They might be just sort of blind spots. It could just be a 
an issue of circumstance. You know, they're, you know, they're in modern Western America and therefore it's just easy to be, you know, ignorant of certain things. In what ways are workers and, you know, parishioners being failed by worship leaders? And, and I, that word failed is probably strong, but I think the, the context matters here that we're talking about in what ways can they, you know, are not serving them as well. Sure. Well, and to be fair, I use the word fail in my book. So I use the strong word. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I would say um, there are a number of ways that pastors and worship leaders can fail workers. The first is denigrating their work. So saying it's all going to burn or it doesn't matter, or saying that the marketplace is, you know, typically like in sermon in sermons, sometimes preachers can use business leaders in their stories as examples of being greedy, you know, Mm -hmm. as opposed to like nonprofit leaders. Other ways can be, um, pastors can fail when they have an overly romantic view of the world. So like, if you really believe in Jesus, then things will go well for you. But the marketplace can often be a very difficult place to be. And it can be really hard. And I know that small business owners have really suffered this last year. Yeah. And so pastors need to have sensitivity that, you know, believing really hard doesn't necessarily fix life's problems. Another can be, you know, one time I went into a worship service and a worship leader started the service and he, he had his guitar and he was strumming along and he said, guys, I know you've all had a really busy week. You've got a lot of things on your mind. You've been working hard, studying. And so, you know, you're just coming in exhausted. But for the next hour, we're just going to focus on God. (laughs) And of course, he was well-meaning. But what he essentially said was, you're not allowed to bring, you know, these experiences from the week Mm -hmm. that have been hard. Uh, You're not allowed to bring that stuff here. Um, You need to leave that at the door because this is a spiritual place. And what he could have said was, guys, I know you've had a lot going on this week. And for the next hour, I just want to invite you to bring that to God and ask God to transform that through the power of the gospel and his spirit. And just bring your your cares about work, about school, about parenting, bring that here, lay that at his feet. Because that's what worship should be. It should not be an escape from the world, but worship should be a place where we learn how to live in the world and be salt and light correctly. And that's really what we're trying to get after in this book is that Sunday morning trains us to have a posture for work that's godly um, if it's done well. Yeah, I think that, I mean, one of the things that you bring up in particular are things like laments, you know, bringing those some of those more negative experiences that we have during the week, because we struggle, right? We struggle, we work hard, we get frustrated. And for some reason, and this has been personally my experience more often than not, when you show up to church on Sunday, you're supposed to be dressed in your best and smiles on and, you know, no negative emotions. You've got everything put together. Mm. And sort of putting on this this pretense that everything is wonderful. And it really wasn't until I started learning about how to actually lament and that God wants us to bring that to him 
that I started to really build a deeper level of faith. All of this goes into, you know, what are our pastors, our elders, you know, various church leaders doing in a practical sense to encourage or discourage that full communion with God. So I wanted to transition a little bit into your the third part of your book, which is on practices. And I think, Doug, you, you had some questions about that. Yeah, so what as I'm reading the first, oh, I guess third of the book, I'm like, wow, this is just like all great insight. I'm really looking forward to what you have to say. Um, the theology part really connected with me. And I knew that the book, I mean, you spelled this out early on, it's like you're going to get into practices and things that we can do in worship. And that's actually one of the unique things about the book is that it isn't just talking about it. It's like you're trying to give us sort of a toolkit in a way to do worship or improve our worship uh, so that it does connect with workers in a, in a better, more worshipful way. So as, as we transition into like talking about some of those practices, it might be helpful to start with saying like, well, what, what sort of source material, if you will, did this, you know, where did it come from? Where did you source some of the suggestions? And then you can just, if you want to, you can go ahead and lead into some of the actual practices and we'll just keep it going from there. Great. Yeah. So a number of things that I drew upon uh, in this section, one is uh, an album uh, that was produced recently called Work Songs by Portersgate. Um, really beautiful music, 12 songs about faith and work that congregations can take on. Uh, we wrote a number of prayers and benedictions and blessings that are, are related to work and, and offered a number of ideas. You know, I mean, one of the things that's quite simple is, I'll, I'll give the example of nursing because my mother's a nurse. So a pastor can offer, you know, three sermons on faith and work. And that, that might have an impact on the congregation and they might remember some of the things he says. However, if that pastor calls the nurses forward and asks the elders to lay hands on them and prays a special prayer for them as they go off into the hospital, I guarantee you those nurses for the rest of their lives will remember that moment. They will remember that their church stopped and prayed specifically for them, and their elders laid hands on them. And that's really the power of worship, to communicate that we're really serious about this. Because my mom, she was a nurse, and my dad was a carpenter. And all while I was a child, we prayed for missionaries, and laid hands on them and sent them out. And we, we even prayed for like the youth group mission team before they went off to Mexico, you know, to serve for a weekend. But you know, my my parents they were they were never called forward and my mother cared for young mothers for 30 years in the hospital at a very vulnerable point she was ministering to them but that was never acknowledged you know my dad mm. provided jobs to many people in the cabinet industry and that that was never acknowledged and so you know there are small very practical ways that that we can do that some churches have a tradition of giving testimonies of uh, you know their conversion story. Uh, one very simple thing that churches can do is give workplace testimonies. Like, how has God met you in the workplace? And you can just line up, you know, five people from your congregation to just give a short story. You know, I, there's a there's a wonderful little idea that we play with called this time tomorrow. 
So at 10 a.m. on Monday morning, where are you going to be? And it's a fun little exercise where you have everyone in the congregation take a selfie in their workplace on Monday. And they send that into the church. And you have all these selfies of church members where they work on Mondays. And then what you do on a Sunday morning is you just cast them up on the screen and you just give people three minutes of silence just to pray for each other in their workplaces, uh, just for three minutes, just as a way of reminding yourself that the congregation is still worshiping and serving God tomorrow, you know? So there's lots of little ideas like that that we sprinkle throughout the, you know, the final uh, couple chapters. We, it's not really a how-to manual, Doug, but what we're trying to do is just try to inspire worship leaders and pastors to get creative with how they, how they welcome workers in to carry the things from the week to God, but then how they send workers out with a sense of mission, you know, how you Mm -hmm. bless and charge and send workers to extend their worship throughout the week. So yeah, that's what we're getting after there. Yeah. You know, I really, I really like the creativity and the, honestly, there's a lot of suggestions, like the way it's like, like not part of the main text of the book. There's a lot of like, you know, I don't know what they're called in publishing world, but they're little vignettes. Vignettes. Yes. Thank (laughs) you. Vignettes of like possible things to add to worship. And, you know, even in the way that you, you know, talk about it, you know, you want the workers to feel more welcome. I tend to have a more creative mindset and approach to, you know, the way in which worship can be done. I grew up in a, I grew up in a conservative Baptist. We were technically independent, but we were pretty much Baptist. And even you know, I, I like what you said earlier. It's like even Baptists have liturgies. Um, <laughs> they just don't call them liturgies, you know. So <laughs> we had ours. And I have, as I've, you know, grown up and I'm well into adulthood, I totally appreciate liturgy a whole lot. And I also appreciate creativity for a number of reasons. I could suspect that there are listeners, or even just in the way that you said it, there could be this criticism that what you're saying is about appealing to workers that churches and and leadership should like change the way that they do worship in such a way that is more appealing to workers or makes them feel more at home. You know, growing up as a teenager in the 90s, that has a sort of seeker-sensitive vibe to it. Uh And I, I don't know if that's really the vibe you're trying to give, but like it did you know, there was an illusion to me as I was, as I'm reading, I'm like, oh, there's, there's this potential danger maybe. And I'm not saying everything about the seeker sensitive movement is bad, Um, (laughs) but it is not, it is not strongly liturgical and deeply theological. And so for many of us who are listening, who care very deeply about those things and how we want those to connect and worship, that could be a fear or a concern. Um, So I thought maybe you could address that. Absolutely. So a couple things. One is what I'm pushing here for uh, is not a new or trendy idea, uh, but a profoundly old one. So if you think that this is sort of like a fad or a new idea, I would encourage you to read Deuteronomy 26, which is the very first workers' liturgy in which the farmer brings his first fruits forward. He lays it down at the altar and he has a specific prayer that he prays over his harvest, and they have a harvest feast. That's what Deuteronomy 26 is. 
um, really all of ancient Israel's worship services are built around agriculture and the economy. The worship services, the priest was not at the center. Really, the work was. They, they wouldn't have the liturgy until the harvest happened or until the cow was ready. So it was really the farmer who chose and, and who's the primary speaker in the uh, Deuteronomy 26. The priest a, has a very small role in Deuteronomy 26. So the first thing is that this is an old idea. The second thing is this is not seeker sensitive in that I'm not trying to just make workers feel welcome or make them feel affirmed because in other parts of the book, I really talk about how worship challenges workers and makes them feel uncomfortable and reminds them that their work does not belong to them. And in fact, there were very stiff penalties for workers in ancient Israel and in the early church who worked dishonestly and then would bring the profits of dishonest work into the temple or into the early church. Uh, that would get you in a lot of trouble in the early church. And that had, you know, the prophets were pretty angry about people who would bring dishonest work into uh, worship. So yeah, this is, this is not seeker-sensitive, let's make workers feel good about their work. Though, of course, that's an aspect of it, right? We, we spent the first part of our time talking about how work matters to God and how it's glorifying to God. Things that are very good can also become very evil, right? They can fall. And so if you, if you bring evil work into, into worship, there are real consequences for that in the Old Testament, in the New Testament. And we, we encourage people to reflect on what that might mean for themselves as well. Mm, good. Yeah, I appreciate that explanation. Doug and I are actually a great little tag team here because he's much more open and creative when it comes to what's permissible in worship. I'm much more traditional. I come from a very traditional background. And so my pushback is from the position of traditional liturgy. You know, um, I'm sure you've heard that you've got two different interpretations or principles of how churches might practice worship. You have the regulative principle, which is usually followed by Reformed and Presbyterian churches. And then you have the normative principle, which is more mainline denominations. But the more traditional denominations might look at your suggestions for prayers and blessings and benedictions as being replacements for worship that they feel is supposed to come straight from God. And I know one of one of the reviews of your book came from a fellow neo-Calvinist, Steve Bishop, who seems to believe that you're trying to replace current lit- liturgies or replace current forms of worship with sort of this new idea or new principles. So can you speak to that? Yeah, I guess I would just say that, um, you know, once again, these are older ideas. Um, the, the idea of, of blessing, for example, um, in the early church, the very first example we have of, of liturgies, the oldest liturgy book, this comes from the second century, specifically records blessings for workers and for their 
for their work. The priest was commanded to name the worker and accept the work and, and bless it at the very first uh, in the early church. And then also in the Old Testament, as I said, the vast majority of Old Testament biblical reflections on worship are work-based. The Psalms, we have a whole chapter on the Psalms, which was the songbook for ancient Israel. And the Psalms are filled with work metaphors uh, and images. Uh, they talk about shovels and money and farming and engineering the foundations of the earth and talk about God working as a shepherd and a host. So I guess to, to those who would say that, once again, that this is, this is a new or a, um, an innovative replacement for traditional worship, I would say that spiritualizing worship is, is the new thing, uh, that historically worship was very earthy and connected to work. The oldest church building that we can find, some of the oldest artwork that we can find from the early church, they had uh, decorated the floors of this early church and the walls with images of fishermen and people carrying fruit and bread and uh, whatever else from their Italian shops into worship. So, yeah, I guess I would just say it's, it's profoundly biblical. It's profoundly historical. Sure. So you would disagree with Steve Bishop that you're trying to replace or redesign worship per se. You're, yeah, you're... So, yeah, so I'm reformed. And mm-hmm. uh, so being reformed means we always want to go back to the sources of scripture in the early church. And that's really what Calvin, you know, was constantly doing. And yeah. So, so being reformed means, I mean, you can see it reflected in the structure of the book because the book gives the most time to scripture and to early church history. So that's just because Corey and I are Calvinists. That's uh, that's what we did. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and I'm I'm Calvinist too. So you know, I certainly understand and appreciate that perspective. I think the thing that sort of threw me off though was that you know some of the you know, the things that we do in, in worship, whether you're a Calvinist in doing, uh, following the regulative principle or a Lutheran following the normative principle. And I've, you know, I've been in both churches, um, but they all want to draw on the scriptures themselves for these blessings, these benedictions, these, these prayers and things like that. And yet your vignettes, the things, some of the suggestions that you offer are not taken directly from scripture. They may be modeled perhaps after scripture, but you were the author of one of one of the, I think it was one of the prayers in there. And so, you know, that's that's where I'm thinking one place of pushback might be. But it sounds to me like what you're saying here is there's plenty of examples in scripture that we can draw on to really accomplish what it is that you're talking about accomplishing without replacing, you know, those with, with new and updated prayers or blessings is, is, am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, I think so. I, I guess I would, I would say that I love it when Sunday morning is bathed in scripture and when scripture is dripped throughout the Sunday morning service. Mm -hmm. However, I do not at all 
agree that quoting from scripture is the only thing that can be said on a Sunday morning. You know, I, I do believe in the power of the Holy Spirit to speak. And so, you know, I mean, whenever, whenever a, a pastor preaches, he's, he's, he's using some creativity. Um, he's not mm-hmm. reading out of the Bible. And so I, I think that, yeah, I would, I would just say that uh, the creativity, the liturgical creativity you find in the book comes out of a conviction that God is still speaking. But of course, I think that because I'm Reformed, worship is ultimately about God and it's not about us. Uh, We are secondary. The primary purpose of worship is the glory of God. It is not not that workers feel affirmed or empowered. Uh, The primary purpose is that God is glorified. But the thing is, is that when you glorify God, you are actually changed. Um, mm-hmm. And your posture towards work changes because you realize suddenly that your work in the world is not about you and it doesn't belong to you and that it's not ultimately for you. And we need to understand that in the Old Testament, God is training these Israelites when, when they continue to offer their work to him. He's training them to realize that their work doesn't belong to them and that the right. land was given to them by God's grace and sovereignty. And so he's giving them a new economy of freedom. And, and I guess I would say, here's the, here's the libertarian point, since I'm on a libertarian con- <laughs> podcast here. I think, you know, if our work is worship and if God freed the slaves to work and worship in freedom, that, that, that means something really special for us, right? That um, true worship and true work should be done in freedom. And that's God's mm-hmm. desire. Yeah. Not to be working to, to glorify some political leader or some empire, but to be working freely, you know, for the good of the community. So yeah. there's your libertarian plug, Carrie. Well, I appreciate, I actually, I appreciate everything that you just said because, and I want to make one final point before Doug wraps this up, because one of my complaints, I think of maybe more conservative churches is this idea that like, I mean, you said it, God changes us, right? When we become Christians, when we are regenerated, we are transformed, we're changed. And if we're changed and we're interacting with the world, then we should be making change in the world as well. And I think that's that's the part that gets missed quite a bit. So, anyways, I appreciate you know everything that that you just said. And yeah, I look forward to writing the review for your book. Oh, I look forward to reading it. And thanks so much <laughs> for the good questions and and quoting the regulative principle. That's awesome. <laughs> it's my first podcast that's brought up the regulative principle. And, and so <laughs> There you go. (laughs) (laughs) My wife is a worship director and she will love it that I got about the regulative principle. Oh, that's (laughs) That's awesome. That's good. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I want to wrap this up in in a way. I mean, we're talking about liturgy. We're talking about being creative and... I think there's there's an appropriateness to what I'm about to ask you to do, Matthew, here. And um, before we got on the air, you said that you wanted this to be a blessing to our listeners. So I think I'm going to ask you to sort of offer that 
some sort of benediction. Like, what do you? What is your heart for what the listeners just heard? Like, what? How do you want them to take what they've just experienced in this conversation out into the world? Okay. Well, let's actually just give them a blessing. Lord God, tonight I I thank you for Carrie and for Doug and for this podcast. And God, I thank you for all of the listeners. Um, here today. God, you know their vocations, their callings, even if they don't right now. God, I pray that you would bless them, that you would give them your strength, that you would go before, behind, and beside them as they go out into their work in real estate agencies, in hospitals, in schools, in companies, God, difficult relationships with employers and employees and clients. God, as they go, may they be a blessing. May they be salt. May they be light. May they cast their their cares and their burdens upon you, and may you give them your yoke because it is easy and light. God, bless them and keep them. May you establish the work of your hands in and through them. May they be your hands and feet, the body of Christ in the world. And may you alone be glorified by this work. Amen. 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 Thank you, Matthew, for joining us today. Thank you, both Carrie and Doug. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Thank you.